Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. All right, everybody take a copy of the Bible and turn to the book of 1 Samuel, please. 1 Samuel chapter 15. In the story that the book of Samuel is telling, we've seen the, the fall of one ungodly regime of leadership in the house of Eli. Eli himself was not so bad a guy, but his sons were wicked and out of control, and Eli did not do enough to restrain their wickedness, and so God removed the leadership of Israel from Eli and, uh, and the priesthood from Eli. But as Eli's leadership was declining, we saw God raising up a new leader in Samuel. And so the first several chapters of the book of Samuel, first seven chapters really, are kind of Samuel's story of how he uh, rose into the position of prophet and, uh, and priest uh, of the people of Israel. And then we saw this transition from a period of judges to a period of kings. And Samuel was given the task to anoint the first king of Israel. And we met that guy uh, several chapters ago, a man named Saul. And so we've been looking at his story over these last few weeks. And the story started off with promise. Saul's leadership in Israel started off well. He was given the task of protecting the people of Israel from their enemies, and to do that by listening to and submitting to the word of God. So God would give Saul instructions through the prophet Samuel, and Saul was responsible to do that and only that which he instructed him to do through his prophet. And in chapter 11, Saul indeed fights Uh, valiantly against uh, the Ammonites and uh, wins a victory, a decisive victory for Israel. The Israelites are thrilled and they uh, happily install him as king. In chapter 12, Samuel leads the people in a covenant renewal ceremony, reminding them not just to follow Saul as king, but to follow Yahweh, God, as the king of both the earthly king and the people. And so they all sort of renewed their covenant with God at that place. And then in chapter 13, things started to turn southward. And we saw that Saul was maybe not as careful as he should be to listen to the word of God and to wait on instruction from the Lord. And so pressed by Philistines on every side, instead of waiting for Samuel to arrive and offer sacrifices and tell him what to do, he offered sacrifices on his own, and God, God's consequence for Saul there was that the dynasty would be removed. Your kingdom shall not continue. So he didn't remove Saul from the kingship, but he said, your sons will not become kings after you, essentially. That was the, the consequence there. And then things have kind of gone from bad to worse. In chapter 14, we saw Saul's son, Jonathan, valiantly fight for the people of Israel, demonstrated real faith in God, saying um, that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by a few. So we see this great example of real faith in God on the part of Jonathan, Saul's son. And then we realize he'll never be king. 
He would have been a good king. But Saul has made sure that that will never happen by his own disobedience. And we see Saul exercising all manner of foolishness and self-obsession in commands to his people to not eat during the whole battle and even pronouncing that his son would have to die because he had eaten honey when he wasn't supposed to. It was a mess. It's just, it's gotten ridiculous. The people of Israel actually stood in and rescued Jonathan from Saul saying, Jonathan is not going to die. He actually just saved the people of Israel. So we're not going to stand by and let him die for this ridiculous reason. And so now in chapter 15, this gets even worse, and Saul will find himself uh, receiving even more dire consequences from Yahweh. And so we will tell this story bit by bit. So let's look in these first couple of verses, beginning in verse 1. I'll read for you three verses, and there are some things here that we'll learn both about human sin and repentance and some things that we'll learn about God and his ways and his character, which I think are uh, worth of our consideration and reflection this morning. Let's begin in verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Pause there. Samuel reminds Saul of his job and of God's position, right? God sent me to anoint you as king. So remember, you're under his authority. Therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. And then he's going to give him instructions. So before giving instructions, he reminds Saul of his position under the authority of God. Listen to the words of God. And we should already be heightened here. Our our sense of, uh, uh, should be heightened here, recognizing, okay, the importance of and the emphasis on specifically listening to the instructions of God. And that's gonna tell us a little bit about how this chapter will probably unfold. I want to, to focus here for a few moments on the vengeance of God. We read these verses and it probably feels a bit unsettling. To you. He's referring to, when he speaks of, of Amalek, he's referring to a, a group of people, the Amalekites, who when, Egypt, when, when the people of Israel were coming up out of slavery from Egypt, so this would have been some 300 years ago at this point, that the Amalekites had attacked Israel even before they got to Mount Sinai, gotten in their way and given them a hard time. And so some 300 years have passed. The ways of the Amalekites have not changed. And in fact, the people of Israel went during the time of conquest were given the instructions to do away with all of the surrounding peoples, the pagan idol worshipers that were in the land. And the fact that the Amalekites are still here in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel is an indication that the people of Israel have still not really done what they intended to do, what they were supposed to do. There's unfinished business here 
in the fact that Amalek is even still around. But God says, I remember what Amalek did to Israel 300 years ago. And he's given them, say 300 years, to repent. So maybe there's even a glimpse of his patience and his long-suffering in that. Nevertheless, he gives to Saul the instruction to go and destroy the Amalekites, to utterly destroy them. The, the formal way that this was stated uh, back in the time of conquest was to impose the ban. So what they were intended to do was to basically almost draw a circle around a, a people or a, a place that God regarded as wicked and abominable to him, and they were to devote it or them to destruction. In other words, they were setting them apart, consecrating them to God's purposes. And in this case, the God, God's purposes was judgment, was destruction. And so God gives Saul this instruction for the Amalekites. Go and devote them to destruction. Devote what to destruction? All that they have. Are we not sure what he means by that? Do not spare them. Okay, well, should we spare anything? Kill both man and woman, both child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. There's not much room left for anyone to escape. So how do we sort this out? How do we take in and, and, and understand the vengeance of God, the severity of God in this way. It's unsettling to us. Nevertheless, this destruction is God's just prerogative. If we keep a few things in mind, I think it'll help us to see that. So first of all, all humanity is sinful and deserving of punishment. No one deserves mercy. Indeed, if anybody deserved mercy, it would no longer be called mercy, right? It's justice. If I deserve mercy and I get mercy, that's justice. Mercy is not getting what I deserve. And there's no human being that is truly innocent in that sense. We have all sinned, as Romans 3.23 tells us, and fallen short of the glory of God. And to fall short of the glory of God is not just a almost had it, just by a nose, almost got there and didn't quite make it. To fall short of the glory of God is to offend an infinite holiness. And offense against an infinite holiness calls for an infinite punishment. And so we need to remember that all humanity is sinful and deserving of punishment. Secondly, God is the creator of life, and he alone has the right to take life away according to his sovereign purposes, and he is good in doing so, even though we bristle at it, perhaps. He is good to do it because he creates life. Job said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That is true of the Lord. He is good and he is right in the giving and the taking of life according to his just purposes. 
Third thing to remember is that the Amalekites are a wicked, idol-worshiping, violent people. They have, for as long as they've lived, as long as they've existed, they have worshiped false gods, they have rebelled against God, and they have indeed attacked God's covenant people. And if you attack God's covenant people, you just might earn the vengeance of a covenant-keeping God. The destruction of idol worshipers surrounding Israel is intended as a means of God's preserving grace for Israel so that they would not be led into the worship of false gods. He said that over and over to them in Deuteronomy and Exodus and other places. To do away with these people so that they would not be led astray to worship false gods. They usually don't follow through on those commands and they leave some people around. And what happens? They get led astray to worship false gods and they begin intermarrying with these pagan idol worshipers. And so they're corrupted and their witness is corrupted and their faith is corrupted and God's name itself is dishonored. And so it's a means of preserving the holiness of God's people as well as issuing judgment upon those who have sinned and rebelled against him. Also, remember that in, under the Old Covenant, right, under, uh, in the Old Testament time, the people of God were a nation. And that's not the case anymore. The people of God are all those who have trusted in Christ from every tribe, tongue, language, nation of the earth, right? And so the, the people of God now are, are, are not bound by any uh, political or geographical boundaries like they were at this time. And so what following God's commands uh, and fighting against the enemies of God and his people looks different now than it did for them back then. But there's one more thing I, I thought would be helpful to bring out here as we think about and try to just process the wrath and vengeance of God. And there's a, a, a Croatian theologian by the name of Miroslav Volf who says this, though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. So indeed, it's God's love that makes him wrathful against wickedness. If he loves his people, then when he sees oppression and injustice done to his people, it angers him. It stirs his heart to wrath, to righteous wrath. And if it didn't, if he was kind of okay abiding injustice and rebellion and oppression, even among his people, then you'd have to question, does God really love his people? Does he really care? And so, in truth, the reality of God's just wrath and his vengeance against rebellion is itself an expression of his love. It's the flip side of the coin. If the head side of the coin is God is love, God is a covenant-keeping God, he's faithful, then the tail side of that coin is there's teeth with that love. There's protection and even uh, offense that comes in preserving and keeping that love and that covenant. So it's heavy. It's hard 
for us to, to sit with, but I think it's good for us to be reminded that the God that we worship, the God that we approach, even right now, in a gathering like this one, is no buddy God. He is a holy God. He is a just and vengeful God. The only reason we can approach him confidently is because we're sheltered in Christ. Because his justice and his vengeance and his wrath has been poured out upon Christ. And when we rest in him, we have a shelter. That's the good news for us. So, does Saul obey? Samuel's reminded him, God anointed you king. Listen to the word of God. Here it is. Go destroy them. Don't spare them. Man, woman, child, infant, ox and donkey, all this. Let's look and see how Saul does. Follow with me at verse 4. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. That was merciful of Saul there to give them a pass. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. How did he do? What was the command? Don't spare them. Nobody. Okay, but maybe the king. And okay, maybe all the really good stuff. All the lambs and fattened calves and that kind of thing. We'll, we'll spare that. But all the worthless stuff, yeah, totally destroy that. But the things we think of as good, we're going we're gonna to let that go. So he has very selectively obeyed at best. He spared the best animals. And supposedly, as he's going to say, it's to sacrifice them to God. He spared the king. He doesn't really give a reason for why he does that. But the command was, don't spare them. Don't spare anyone. And he does not follow through. It's good for us to see here and we will see very plainly from God's response to Saul as Samuel approaches him that selective obedience is disobedience. Picking and choosing which commands of God we like and which ones seem too hard or which ones sort of are in line with our personality or our natural strengths or gifts and which ones are maybe just a little bit too radical Picking and choosing the commands of God that we want to follow and the ones that we decide not to give attention to is not obedience. It's just that simple. We don't have the right to decide what, when we listen and when we don't. When we obey and when we don't. And if we obey in, you know, seven-tenths of the instructions but don't follow through with the last three-tenths of the instructions, then in God's mind, we've not obeyed. We've disobeyed. So we should learn from Saul's example here. Selective obedience 
is disobedience. Well, let's see how God responds. Beginning of verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. So now this is off screen. This is not where Saul is. God is now speaking directly to Samuel the prophet. Verse 11. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry. And he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel... Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. Don't you just, can't you just feel Samuel's exasperation with Saul at this point? Just cut it out. Don't give me the lines. I know what's happened here. Stop. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then? Did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. So the consequence here goes the rest of the way. If in chapter 13 he said, I'm not firing you as king, but your kingdom will not continue after you, here it's done. He says, time's up. You're finished. You're not the king. And he's going to tell him, I found somebody else that's going to do the job and he's better than you. (laughs) We'll get to that in a minute. I regret that I have made Saul king, is what God said to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me. He's not my disciple anymore. He's not following. I regret that I've made him king. We'll talk more in a few minutes about that, the notion of God's regret. But for now, consider that Saul's failure to carry out the word of God has grieved God's heart. That's what we see here. 
This is an emotive way of expressing God's displeasure, his sorrow over the disobedience of Saul. I regret that I've made him king because he's turned back from following me. He is sorrowful over Saul's disobedience. And Saul's disobedience leads to a devastating consequence. God has rejected him as king. The heart of all this, why Saul's sparing of Agag and certain animals is so displeasing to God and brings such dire consequences, is made clear in verses 22 and 23. Let's look at that one more time. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? In other words, is God as pleased by religious duty as he is by obedience? And then he answers the question right after that. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen is better than the fat of rams. I don't think God is saying here, I'm not interested in the sacrifices. He's not saying, I don't want you to do the sacrifices because that was a part of the old covenant system and the way that Israel would relate to God. There was these sacrifices that had to be made. So he's not saying stop sacrificing. What he is saying is, if you go through the rituals and the routines and the rhythms of religious observance, but you're not in right relationship with me, it's useless. I'm not interested in your religious observance if your heart is far from me. That's what he is communicating here. Your religious duties and rituals are meaningless to me if you're not living in obedience to my word. He's not merely looking for conformity to some religious code. He is looking for hearts yielded to his authority and gladly inclined toward him. And Saul has demonstrated time and again that his heart is not inclined toward the Lord. And he does not carefully listen and obey the word of God. He basically says here, if you're not going to follow my word, you may as well be worshiping pagan idols, right? It's as good as divination, which is like consulting with the dead, which is a little bit of foreshadowing because Saul will do just that in chapter 28. We'll get to that later. You may as well be worshiping pagan idols. You might as well be visiting witches and necromancers if you're doing all this religious stuff, but your heart is not mine. You're not listening and obeying the word of God. I don't care how many sacrifices you offer. Church, let's heed this warning. Our religious activities, singing songs, listening to sermons, attending Bible studies, giving to the church and other charities, going to prayer meetings, etc., are useless if we are living in willful disobedience to his word. If there are sins in your life and patterns of sin that you know about and you're not dealing with it, then your church attendance and your offerings and your songs are useless. That's essentially what he's saying here. If you are in willful disobedience to me, all your sacrifices and your songs and all the religious stuff you do, it doesn't matter. It doesn't do you any good and it's detestable to me. Your rituals of religious devotion are not pleasing to God if your heart is far from him. The exhortation here is not, so stop coming to church, stop reading your Bible, 
Stop singing songs. That's not the point. The point is, let's lean into him. Let's be willing to address the sin in our lives. Let's be willing to confess to him and to brothers and sisters in Christ when that's appropriate and to seek accountability and help and let's return to the Lord. Let's prioritize again his word and obedience to his word so that our our singing of songs and listening to sermons and church attendance is not incongruent with the posture of our hearts, the inclination of our lives. Well, God has rejected Saul as king. That much is final. But Saul still has an opportunity here, just for the good of his own soul, to acknowledge his sin and seek mercy from God. Not for the retaining of his kingship, but for the good of his own soul. How will he respond? Let's look at verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul. And Saul bowed before the Lord. So at first, it seems that maybe Saul has responded appropriately. And he's recognized his sin and he's repenting. But if you look a little bit between the lines, I think we find that Saul's repentance is superficial. And I think we find, again, a negative example and a warning to us to avoid superficial repentance. First of all, our first clue is that his repenting involves blame shifting. He said it verse, way back uh, earlier in verse 15, he said, uh, when, when Samuel said, so what's the cattle lowing that I hear if you killed everything? He, back then he blamed other people. Well, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep. In verse 21, he does it again. The people took the spoil, the sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction. In verse 24, he does it again. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words. Why? Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Right? They pressured me. They're the ones who made me do this. And I guess I shouldn't have you know, relented and, and done what they wanted. But, but there, you know, there's this finger pointing going on. Yeah, I did sin. But, 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 have you looked at them? He makes some excuses for himself. We were, we were just going to use them to worship God, right? Well, yeah, I spared those things, but of course, I mean, what a great sacrifice this would make, right? It's like, yeah, I stole that money, but think about how much I could give to the church. God doesn't want that money. God doesn't want that sacrifice. That's not obedience. Self-preservation. Look at verse 30. 
after this third time, so he's, he's said, please forgive me and return with me. And Samuel reiterates, no, the Lord's rejected you from being king. I'm not going back with you. Then he grabs his robe, which may be like a, a symbol of kind of like, I'm putting myself at your mercy. And so he grabs his robe and it tears. And Samuel sees kind of a visible par- a parable there. Well, just like you tore the robe, the kingdom of God has been torn from you. And so then his final request in verse 30 is, okay, I have sinned, but honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. So what's he concerned about? His reputation. It, I, I, I can't let them see that the kingdom, that I've been rejected. Let's, like, let's smooth this over. Maybe we can go talk and kind of work all this out of the details. But for right now, will you go ahead and just like honor me and bless me and let's do all the stuff we're supposed to do so that the people still think highly of me? That's not a repenting heart that's concerned about saving face. All this has the effect of minimizing the seriousness of his sin. Though he's saying the right words, I have sinned, I've transgressed, I did not do what I was commanded. All the while, he's adding all of these little asterisks and caveats and but did you think about and but you have no idea the pressure I was under. And all of that has the effect of minimizing the seriousness of his sin. It really wasn't my fault. I obeyed most of the command. It's more important that we keep a positive morale, you know. In other words, my sin isn't really that big a deal. Can't we just move past it? Yeah, 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 I I didn't do it all right. Okay, sorry, forgive me, now let's go. It's all so easy in Saul's mind. We just gotta get through this little ritual of, I'm sorry, forgive me. You know, if you have kids and you kind of lead them through those like, okay, I'm sorry I hit you, I shouldn't have hit you, that was wrong. You know, you're like, I'm not sure how heartfelt that was. That's a little bit what you get from Saul here, right? Okay, you're right, I didn't obey, I'm sorry, disobey, will you forgive me? Now honor me before the people. It's not that easy. That's not what's gonna happen here. If you comfort yourself by minimizing the seriousness of your sin, you're not repenting. Repenting people take responsibility for their sinful actions and words, and they don't make excuses for themselves. Yeah, I did sin against you, but think about all the things that were going on. Repenting people are more concerned with God's honor than their own comfort or reputation. Let me give you a long list of explanations so you understand everything I was thinking and feeling so that you know that what I did was really not all that bad. I'm guilty of that all the time. I want to couch it in certain terms rather than just saying, that was wrong. I'm sorry. That's what it takes. Have you ever had an an apology from somebody that's like just so filled with personal explanations and rationalizations of like, yeah, I'm sorry I did that. But, you know, let me explain to you the whole situation and everything that was going on and all that I was thinking and what I really meant to say. Just, like Samuel, stop. Just say, I sinned. It was wrong. Forgive me. And that's it, right? Repenting people are grieved, not merely by sin's personal consequences, like I'm really sorry that I got caught, right? Repenting people are grieved by the grief that it causes God. I don't see that in Saul. I don't see Saul going, man, God is so good to me, 
and I have blundered this badly. I hope and pray that he will forgive me. I don't, I don't see that. May we have the humility by the Spirit of God and his work in us to confront our sin without the excuses, without the justifications, without the self-preservation. And just say, I was wrong. I sinned. So I want to talk just a little bit about God's regret. In verse 10, he told Samuel, I regret that I've made Saul king. And in fact, the chapter closes with that very same phrase, that Yahweh regretted making Saul king. But then in verse 29, Samuel says to Saul, the glory of Israel, which is a term he's using there for God, for Yahweh himself, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And so you kind of think, well, which is it? Does he regret that he made Saul king, or does he not have regret because he's not a man? What it, what is this? It seems to be contradictory. And so I think it's worth reflecting here for just a moment. First of all, God does not regret things in the sense that he made a mistake and wishes he could go back and redo it. It's not like the quarterback who's under pressure and makes a risky throw and it gets intercepted. And the commentator says, I bet he wishes he could have that one back. God doesn't wish he could have anything back. He didn't make a goof and go, ah, snap, I did that wrong. I regret that I made Saul king. That's not how he regrets, because he's done nothing wrong. This regret is grief. This regret is genuine sorrow over human sinfulness, which is a, a sweet reminder to us that God is not immovable in the sense that he is truly affected by the choices and actions of his creatures and of his people. He is not fickle, but neither is he frigid. He is personal. He is emotional. He feels the effect of our sin and rebellion. And so this regret is an expression of his sorrow over Saul's disobedience. Secondly, the mysterious reality of God's providence is that God decrees things that actually displease him. To say that God decrees things is to say that he brings things to be, right? And so there's a, there's a way in which God decrees things to happen that in another way are displeasing to him. Therefore, human sin is at once against his will and yet somehow according to his will as well. And I think some theological categories might help us to sort this out. So theologians often speak of God's revealed will and his secret will, or his will of command, that is, don't murder, don't steal, love your neighbor, right? That's his revealed will, his will of command, and his will of decree, that is, all that comes to pass. You can speak, and sometimes the Bible speaks of God's will in these two different ways, in these two different senses. And it doesn't usually come out and spell it out. Here's the sense that I mean right now. You have to read between the lines and understand context and see what's going on here to understand what sense of God's will are we talking about here. Because there's things that God decrees that are displeasing to him. The best and clearest example of that is the cross of Christ. That was clearly decreed by God. 
John's gospel tells us over and over that every step of Christ's journey toward the cross was fulfilling the plan of God. He planned for Jesus to be betrayed by one of his own. He planned for Jesus to be handed over uh, and, and tried unjustly by these Jewish priests. He planned for a Roman governor to hand him over to be, and deliver him up to be crucified. All of that was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, we learn in the book of Acts. And yet, that story is full of human sin that we know is displeasing to God. There was lying and bearing false witness. There was treachery and deceit. There was murder. It was clearly filled with things that were displeasing to God at the level of his will of command or his revealed will. But in the sense of his will of decree or his secret will that we don't get to know about in advance, it was according to his will. It pleased him. So there are, there's a way for things, especially sins, to be against his will and yet according to his will. And so I don't think we need to see God as doubting himself, second-guessing, oh, man, maybe I made the wrong choice. Maybe I should have waited another 10 years and anointed his son. Jonathan, he was a much better guy, right? He doesn't, he doesn't regret what he did in the sense that he made a mistake. He regretted Saul's kingship in the sense that Saul's disobedience grieved and displeased him. Nevertheless, God did not regret anointing Saul in the sense that he made a mistake and wishes he could have that one back. His sovereign will is accomplished even through the foolish disobedience of sinful human beings. Because that's just how crazy, amazing God is. He is beyond us in so many ways. And that is good news for us. Nevertheless, Saul, Samuel concedes, I'm not sure exactly why, in verse 31, he does finally go back with Saul and bow with him before the Lord. I'm not sure what that's about. Maybe he just takes pity on him. Samuel seems to have some level of like uh, concern, interest, investment, obviously in Saul as the one that he anointed king. He's weeping all night long when God tells him he's rejecting him as king. So perhaps there's just a soft spot in Samuel's heart for Saul. And so eventually he relents and he goes back down to Gilgal with him and they bow before the Lord together. And then he has to finish the job that Saul refused to do. Uh, look at verse 32. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. Kids, you should cover your ears at this point. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And we go, man, Samuel is a beast. This guy, this guy can do it all, right? He's old. We've already talked about how old he is and his ministry is waning and he's passed on, the right? And he's hacking Agag to pieces. I'm glad we don't have more details than that about how that happened. This is a gruesome scene to be sure. Nevertheless, this is what Saul was supposed to do. He was supposed to destroy the Amalekites, including Agag, their king. And for whatever reason, he spared him. So now Samuel goes, great, now I got to do it. Thanks a lot. Bring him here. And Agag 
clueless, like, well, the bitterness of death is past, and no, I don't think so. There's one more coming. And so the chapter ends in stark tragedy. The last verse here, the last two verses, I guess, 34 and 35, it could not be more bleak. Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gebeah. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. Never saw him again. Saul goes, Samuel goes home. I'm done. Saul goes home. And they never see each other again. Which means that the rest of Saul's time as king, however limited though that is, we'll see how that unfolds in the coming chapters, is without another word from God. He is utterly on his own. He is rejected. God says, I'm not talking to you anymore. You're finished. And so we're at maybe an all-time low uh, for the people of Israel, at least in this season. What seemed so good and promising on the front end with Saul as this powerful, you know, good-looking, brave king has ended, as it were, in disgrace and in silence from God. The Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And so we have the bookends. The Lord regretted it, the Lord regretted it, and then right in the middle, Samuel saying, the Lord is not like a man that he should regret, that he should change his mind. Tim Chester says, the rejection of Saul does not mean the rejection of God's plan for God's people. God will be faithful to his promises. Indeed, the very next chapter will introduce us to a new king, King David. And it will be a descendant of David from the tribe of Judah who would reign on David's throne forever. The true king, the forever king, Jesus Christ. And Jesus would succeed where Saul failed and ultimately where David will fail too and every human king after him. He would strictly heed the word of God and obey him in every detail. Indeed, Philippians 2 tells us that he would become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because of his obedience, his sacrifice would indeed be acceptable to God. Whereas Saul's sacrifices are detestable to him, I don't want your sacrifices because you're not in obedience to me, Jesus would perfectly obey the will of the Father. And so when he makes a sacrifice, God accepts it. But he would not merely sacrifice bulls and rams. He would sacrifice his own life. The righteous for the unrighteous that our penalty might be paid and our sins forgiven. Saul's failure is our failure. Saul's disobedience is our disobedience. Saul's superficial repentance is often our superficial repentance. The exhortation that Samuel gave to Saul at the beginning, listen to the word of God. It's the very same exhortation that he would give to us today. I believe he is giving through his Holy Spirit. But you know what? We're not going to do it. 
we're not going to faithfully and, and meticulously listen to and obey God's word. We don't have it in us. We need another. We need someone who will stand in for us and obey in our place and bear our guilt in our place. And praise God, Jesus Christ has done that. And so we stand before God, cleansed, forgiven, whole, and welcome because of Christ. Not because of our ability to obey, praise be to God, but because Christ obeyed for us. Christianity is not about what you do, it's about what he did. It's, it's, very, it's less what would Jesus do and more what has Jesus done. And let's rest in that and trust in his finished work. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by your holiness and our sinfulness. Lord, if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that we fall far short of your glorious standard and we have offended your holiness. And so it is amazing to consider the depths to which you have gone for our souls. Father, we do pray that you would help us, teach us by your spirit at work in us, not to repent superficially of our sin, not to selectively obey your word, but to lean in, to hear your voice, and to do all that you command us to do. But Father, we thank you that even when we stumble and we fall and we fail, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ who set our sins aside and bore our penalty for us. May we rest in him and trust in his completed work on our behalf. If there's anyone in this room who has not made that confession and, and trusted in Christ, Father, we pray that you would do that work in their hearts today. Lord, send us out by your spirit for your glory to rest in Jesus and to proclaim him crucified and risen to everyone we have a chance to tell the good news. In Jesus' name.